Do you ever notice how easy it is to miss the obvious? Well, the following story has no theological or biblical accuracy, but it does make a point. So I want to give you the disclaimer up front. The story is told of a man who appears before the pearly gates. He's met by St. Peter who says, Have you ever done anything of any particular merit? And the guy says, well, I can think of one thing that I can remember. He said, once I came upon a gang of high testosterone bikers who were threatening a young woman. I directed them to leave her alone. He says, but they wouldn't listen. So I approached the largest and the most heavily tattooed one. I smacked him on the side of the head. I kicked over his bike. I ripped out his nose ring, threw it on the ground. I told him, now get out of here and leave her alone. Peter said, wow, that was great. Now, when did that happen? He goes, well, just a few minutes ago. You know, it, it, it's, it's easy to miss the obvious, uh, and it's only after the obvious is pointed out that it becomes obvious to all. And the last time that we were together, uh, we began to examine a biblical description of the ideal church as it's seen in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And as a reminder, you'll find uh, in your handouts an outline that's uh, provided for those of you who like to take notes. And in this passage, we find a church that is unified, magnified, and multiplied and a church that's worth imitating. And uh, once it's pointed out, it'll become obvious to all, as it was to me as I looked at this passage, of how, gee, how simple this is, how true this is, how obvious it is, and yet how, how we miss it, you know, how often it is that we miss it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, our society is turned upside down and we do everything backwards. For example, even we are going to encourage people to come late so that they can leave early. So, you know, we have to, there's something wrong with that kind of philosophy. You know, we're going to have to work out some different parking structure. Everyone will be sitting out in the street waiting to be the ones that come up the middle of the aisle. So we're going to, we're going to work through that. And uh, in Acts chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Acts 2, starting with verse 41, and we'll read these words. It says, so then, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It says, And day by day, continually with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You know, I've come to realize that churches are no different than other institutions and that everyone has an opinion as to how things should be uh, conducted, um, you know, how it should be structured, what's the purpose, and next week's message will be on the purpose of the church um, what the objective should be, and on and on and go, when we meet, where we meet, you know, where the services should be. Everyone has an opinion. And uh, what's interesting is, uh, you know, our opinions need to be based on something beyond just our own personal preferences. And it's important when we look at the structure of a church that we base our opinions or our convictions, a better word for it, on what God has to say. You know, we, we have opinions and we have ideas of how we want something to be. And then in order to try to persuade people to adopt that opinion or idea, we try to spiritualize things. 
give you an example. I heard a story of a, a young boy, his name was Billy, and when he was little, this kid was a terror, man. This kid was just, you know, he just, he, he just was, he's a handful, he just tear it up. One day he came home from elementary school, and uh, he didn't realize that the pastor was inside talking with his parents. Without going into the house, he went around to the backyard to play, and suddenly he spotted a big, ugly, hairy rat under a bush. He thought, wow, you know what, mom and dad would be so proud of me if I killed that rat. So he grabbed a baseball bat, man, tipped up behind it, raised the bat over its head, and bam, he just smashes this thing like emerald. And um, he, he hit the rat with the bat. He stepped on it. He smashed it with his foot. He picked up a rock, and he smashed it again. He bashed it against a tree. He ran it through with the little knife that he had, and he killed it. Now, little Billy wanted his folks to see what he had done. He picked up the bloody rat. He raced inside, still not realizing that the pastor was there. With great excitement, he explained, Mom, Dad, look at it. Look at it. I just killed this rat. You would have been so proud of me. I clubbed it over the head with a baseball bat. I stepped on it. I smashed it with my foot and then a rock. I picked it up. I hit it against a tree and I ran it through with a knife. And then he realized he saw the pastor there. And all of a sudden, he dropped the rat and he said, And then the Lord called him home. You know, we, 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 we just spiritualize it. We, we want something done a certain way. And if we just spiritualize it, then everyone will go, oh, it sounds spiritual. You know, the point is, if we're to have strong convictions, they must be based on Scripture. You know, as I mentioned last time we're together, as Augustine stated, you know, in, in, the, in the essentials, there must be unity. In non-essentials, there must be liberty. And in all things, there must be charity. In essentials, we have to be united. And when we look at this passage, there are certain essentials, and I have a very strong conviction as to how we should conduct ourselves as a church because of what I clearly see taught in the Word of God. There are three dimensions to this church that are worth imitating and three dimensions that I hope that we as a church will will also um, um, demonstrate in our conduct with one another and the world around us. The first thing that we saw is that this church here in Acts chapter 2 was a unified church. They were unified, and they were unified around five essentials. And the first thing that we saw is that, and when you're talking about, and it's important too to understand, when you talk about unity, we can't confuse unity with uniformity. You know, uniformity is someone's idea that everyone should look and sound and talk and act a certain way. The whole word uniform has to do with everybody looking alike. That's why in schools they've gone to school uniforms so that no one will stand out and they can control what's being worn and, you know, and all that goes along with that. But they want everybody to be the same as far as at least outward appearances. You know, police departments, military, they wear uniforms so that from the outside everybody looks the same. But see, in God's church, we're never to confuse uniformity for unity. Because as you can see looking around, the the church of Jesus Christ is a diverse group of people. And not only are we a diverse group of people, but we're also gifted differently and brought together in one body to perform uh, special functions that will enable us and equip one another for the work that God has for us to do. A good example that's found in, in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to look at that, you'll see that you know, God has a purpose <clears throat> in the diversity of the church. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a passage that deals with the diversity in the body. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 12, we read these words. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Notice what he's saying. There's one body, but it's diverse. For one spirit, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, which we'll talk about again in a second when we talked about last week. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not, part, it, it is, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye and I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body, if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body as He desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which seem less honorable are these we bestow even more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But see, God has so composed the body, given more abundant honor to that member which lacked, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets and third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healings and helps and administration and various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greatest gifts, and I show you still a more excellent way. The reality of the church of Jesus Christ is that God has so chosen to call people from diverse backgrounds, different socio and economic backgrounds, different, quote, religious experiences, different races, different economic and social standing in the world that we live in. And he's called them all together and brought them together for the purpose of forming his body for his glory and his purposes. And when we look at this, the first thing that we saw is the church is to be comprised of saved individuals. And it's important to recognize and understand the foundation of the church is that people who have come to recognize their sinfulness and are guilty, as God says, and they realize it, and they turn to God and they throw themselves on His mercy for forgiveness, and they go to the cross believing that God loved them to the point that He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for their sins and was raised again from the dead to trust and put their faith in Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, the Bible says to those who do so, He gives the right or privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in His name. And then God brings us together. The one thing we have in common is it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God that was extended to all who receive His gift so none of us could ever boast. 
You and I are here because of the grace of God and for no other reason. We are then put into His body for a purpose, the church, so that we can do the things that God has gifted, enabled, and empowered us to do for His purposes and for His glory. You know, when we look at this, it it changes everything. The foundation of the church are those who have come to faith and been added to the body of Christ by God Himself. For it's not by the will of man, but by God. Born again from above, not by our own actions or our own efforts, but by God's will. So we come together on the basis that we have one thing in common, and that is that we've all trusted and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then when we come together, we can praise Him as a group of people who are called from darkness and brought into the light so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has done so. We come and we praise God together. We come and we're instructed by the Word of God so that by it we will grow and respect our salvation. We come to be a community and a body of believers and that's what's laid out here for us. But a foundation is our foundation is built on Christ and Him alone. The second thing is that our church is to be a scriptural church. If you'll notice back in Acts chapter 2, it says that the, they were added daily. Those who had received His Word were baptized and they were added that day 3,000 souls. In verse 41 and verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're to be a biblically-based church. All the instruction from the Word of God is what we'll use as a basis for making all of our decisions. All Scripture is inspired by God as we learned when we went through Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 16-18, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate and equipped to do all the good works that God has for us to do. And it all comes from the Word of God. We've got to be people who have a hunger for God's Word. And I, you know what? And I know a lot about eating. And I enjoy it. And one thing that I've learned about eating is this. You know what? Sometimes the ambiance isn't as important as what they lay down in front of you. Amen? Right? So we don't get all hung up on, you know, well, look at the ambiance of this room. See, because to me, ambiance always raises kind of a flag in my mind. Ambiance means, you know what? Higher prices, smaller portions. That's all that it means. You know, look it up. Look it up in the dictionary. I'm telling you right now, that's all I ever got out of ambiance, right? You know, higher prices, smaller portions. Man, some of the best places I ever ate were just dives. Holes in the wall that you go and you say, hey, if you can get beyond what you're seeing and just focus on what they bring you, you're going to enjoy this. I mean, some of the best places when I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania that I ate were places that, you know, where there was a pool stick coming past your head. You know, and you couldn't even see what they were bringing because the room was so smoky, you couldn't see anything. It was always so funny. It's like, you want smoking or non-smoking section? Does it matter? Because this is the smoking section, that's the non-smoking section. And we're sitting right there and the guy's finished his meal going, well, and another thing. You know, so it's like, look, you know, but I'll tell you what, when they would bring something, you go, man, you know what? That's some good food. And what I want and what I hope is that every time that we get together, You walk away going, man, I am filled up on the Word of God. And I got some good eats today. You know, because like, you know, that just a hunger and thirst for righteousness, to hunger for the Word of God, to be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, that you can't get enough of God's Word. Man, you know, I've left restaurants and I was starving when I left 
and I was light in the wallet. And that's a terrible combination. You know, I want you to come here and go, man, you know what? I learned something today. I came with a hunger for truth and God met me right where I was. And you know what? Let me tell you something. We don't have to dumb down the pulpit. You know why that is? Because if you're not born again, it won't matter what I say because it won't make any sense anyway. But if you're born again, you know what's awesome about God? He'll reach you right where you are. From the youngest to the oldest, and I'm talking about immaturity in their faith. Not chronological ages, because I know young people chronologically who know a whole lot more about the Word of God than people that are older, but it just has to do with when they came to faith in Christ and where they are on that road that we're traveling. He who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. But we don't have to dumb down the pulpit because God's Spirit will reach us right where we are. And so I'm not concerned about, oh, you know, is that too much or too heavy? No, you know why? Because God knows. And He'll deal with that. So this will be a, a biblical church, a scriptural church. It'll be a sharing church. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But in one word, the, what we share in is we share in Christ's suffering on the cross. And we share in the power of His resurrection. We'll talk in more practical, tangible terms as it relates to us one another. But from a vertical relationship, everyone who is born again shares in the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And what it does is, and then it translates into our horizontal relationships with one another. First, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then we have peace even in our own heart because of our relationship with God. And then you know what? It extends that we'll have peace with one another as a result. That's the order. That's how it works. We're to be a sharing church and God will get all the glory. We're also to be a church that focuses on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to the breaking of bread, specifically referring to remembering what Jesus did on the cross, that we will always remember that. And, and whether it's in our services or whether it's in our small groups or wherever, I encourage you at all times to remember what Jesus has done. Don't ever forget. You know what's amazing? And, and I find this true in my own life, and I'll just challenge you to think about the same thing. And that's this. I find myself dwelling on things in the past that God says, forget it and lay it behind you. Lay it behind and move on to press on to what lies ahead. I find myself remembering things like that instead of remembering the things God says to remember. Like, you know what? Remember what I did for you on the cross. Remember how I delivered you out of Egypt, he said to Israel. Don't ever forget my miraculous mighty hand that lifted you up. Don't ever forget what God has done. Don't ever forget where God has called you and brought you from. Don't ever forget. Because when you do, you will have a tendency to not have compassion for people who are still where you were when God reached out and pulled you out of that mess. Don't ever forget where God has brought you from. One of the reasons I love to, to, to go and share my testimony is that every time I share my testimony, what God has done and how I came to faith in Christ, it is a reminder to me of where I was when Jesus came and sought me out. And I would encourage all of you to make it a regular habit of sharing your testimony with people that God brings into your life. Because as you do, you will never forget because when we forget, then we start thinking more about us. I'm not that bad. According to who? Ask around. You know, when you start feeling a little bit more high, highly of or thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to, to affect sound judgment, just ask around. You know, that'll therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You want to humble yourselves? Then just ask what other people think of you.
if you dare. Number five, we saw that there's a church of supplication or prayer. We'd be continually committed to prayer. So we move on in verses 43 through 47. We see, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. A church that's unified as to these fundamental truths will be magnified to the world around us. We'll be magnified to the world around us because we agree on these essentials. We're unified on the essentials. We have unity on the essentials. And on the non-essentials, there's liberty, there's grace, there's um, forbearance of one another, uh, there's love, there's charity, and and in everything. And when we look at this to be a magnified church, it means that the world around us will see us unified in these areas. And you know what's amazing? When you have a church of diverse gifts diverse backgrounds, experiences, social and economic status, moving in unity to accomplish a purpose. When you see God raising the spiritually dead to life and hear testimonies of those who have been born again, such a church will be awe-inspiring. I mean, look at that. It says, and everybody, everybody, not just those who are coming to the church, but those who are around them. Everybody kept feeling a sense of awe. Know what the word awe means? It means, man, there's a sense of God's presence. It was a word phobos or phobia or fear or reverence. It meant that, you know what? This is a holy place. We're standing on holy ground. We sense God's Spirit moving in this group of people. And you know what? And frankly, it causes us just to drop our jaws and go, ah. I'm in awe of what I see. And the reason is because this all happened within three weeks. You know, it's a continuation of a, a preaching and teaching ministry and a sharing and caring ministry that's gone on for years. But, but all this that you see has happened within three weeks. And last week when we showed up, I looked around and I was in awe. Linda and I got here at like 7 o'clock and there have been, you know, 30 people here from 6.15 to 6.30. And, and, and when you walk in and you sit in these chairs, they just didn't happen. You know, there's order, there's design, there's purpose. You know, it just didn't happen. People were here to set things up. People were here to, to, to set up tables. You know, the child care, the nursery, the facilities. People are involved. And you know what? And it's bigger than me and it's bigger than any of us. It's a God thing. Amen. You know what I'm saying? And when a God thing is happening, you can't help but just go, Ah, ah, this is ah. And God gets all the praise and He gets all the glory. Think about this. Here were these Jews and 3,000 of them in one day dropped to their knees and said, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, Savior of the world. He's the one that God has promised to us. We put Him to death on the cross, but God loves us anyway. And He says, come to the cross and I'll forgive you. And they came and 3,000 people in one day The community was turned upside down and everyone was in awe because this was all God. See, God deserves all the glory and praise. And when it's so much bigger than any of us, we all step back and say, we're on holy ground. We're in the presence of God and to God be all the glory. See, it was an awe-inspiring church. It wasn't something that was happening because there were gifted people trying to make it happen. 
It happened because God made it happen. And God gets all the glory and He gets all the praise. God is present and we can feel that He is with us. We can sense His presence with us. Last week as people walked up one after another after another and this week again and smiles and joy and expressions of gladness and excitement to be here and enthusiasm in God. Man, they're excited. We're excited. You're all excited. It's been years since I've been this excited to show up for church and I love preaching the Word of God. But you know what? It's a God thing. And it was awe-inspiring. The same word is used in Acts 5, verse 5 and 11, which if any of you know the, the, the story, it's about Ananias and Sapphira. And when God struck him dead for lying, it said, if you look at that, in Acts chapter 5, just switch ahead, says, you know, in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 5, says in verse 3, it says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your hearts? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notice, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great awe came upon all who heard of it. Ha, 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 You know, and when we encourage you and challenge you, and I challenge myself to confess our sins before God, Man, all i got to do is think back to this passage and say, you know what, don't be deceived, men and ladies. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he's going to reap. And if God says, come to me, confess your sin, and I'm faithful and just to forgive you, I'm thinking, let's take him up on the offer. Because Ananias didn't, and everyone was in awe of what God did to him. So let's not let all of us be in awe of what God chooses to do in your life because you refuse to confess your sin and repent and turn from it. The awe-inspiring church. Isn't that great? It's important that they weren't awed by the church because of its buildings, its programs, or anything reflecting any human ability. You know, but by the supernatural character of its life. They were in awe because God was moving among them. And they didn't get hung up on the chandeliers, the disco ball, or the little, you know, elk's heads that were hanging on the wall last week, or whatever else we got. It's like they didn't notice all that stuff. They were in awe, and so am I. We got a place to meet. You know what I'm saying? Just look around. You can't find a place for this many people to meet too many places. You know, it's not going to work at our house. I know that. You got parking problems now. We used to have parking problems when we had our Rams Bible studies at our house, you know, and people would be triple park, double park. We were we live in a cul-de-sac, people just blocked the street and everything. But the cool thing was everyone was so big the neighbors didn't complain. They'd be like, You go tell them this block in the driveway. No, you go tell them. I ain't gonna tell them. Well, I'm telling anybody anything. And I think they all had something to do with the Rams moving to St. Louis, but it's just a theory. I'm not sure how accurate it is. I'm in awe. I'm in awe. I'm in awe when I see the praise band. I'm in awe when I see the workers in the nursery and the high school and junior high school and all the ministries that have begun. I'm in awe because it's not, it's not nothing. I, I'm not that sharp. I'm just not. I'm just in awe because it's all a God thing. The second thing is that this church was also, if you look back to Acts chapter 2, it was a miraculous church. 
And they were continually devoting themselves, we're told, to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking the bread to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe that God's hand was on this ministry. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. It was a miraculous church. Now, it's important to recognize and understand in the context in which we see that the purpose of the miracles through the apostles was to affirm them as God's spokesmen. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that once, those, once the scripture was completed and the passing of the apostles, it wasn't necessary any longer for God to work through men and affirm what they did because now God works through men and women and affirms what they do and we can check to see if it's of God or not by checking the word of God. See, in Acts chapter 17, the Bereans examined everything by the scriptures to make sure that what was being taught or said or done was from God. But at this particular time, God had to put his hand on these men so that people knew that what they said was reflective of God's will. And so when we look at this, you'll see as you go through on your own study the book of Acts, you'll see, for example, that every time there was a healing or a miracle that took place, it was always for the purpose of telling people about Jesus. It was to get their attention and nothing got anybody's attention more than somebody that was dead coming back to life. Or somebody that couldn't walk, now walking. Somebody that was ill, you know, now being healed. Nothing would get anybody's attention quicker than that. But the whole purpose of that, which was only temporary, by the way. I mean, it lasted the rest of their lifetime, but then they all died. Because the soul that sins dies. The whole purpose of the miracle was so that then when they began to tell them about Jesus, they would have their attention. And I would think that it got their attention. It was a miraculous church. And you know what? Let me tell you something. God's not done doing miracles today. He may not do them the same way through people as he chose to do then, but he still does miracles because he's a God of miracles. And you know what? Just look around. You and I are a miracle of God. Because if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and been born again from above, listen, folks, you were dead spiritually and God brought you to life. I was dead to God and alive to sin When I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior, when I was born again, I became alive to God and dead to sin. And that is a great miracle. That is a great miracle. Anytime you take something that's dead and you give it life, there's nothing greater than that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest sign because he came back from the dead. And no one's been able to duplicate it outside of the will of God. We're a miraculous church. This church will be a miraculous church because we're committed to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as God raises up dead people spiritually, it'll be awe-inspiring to those who see what God does in our midst. The ideal church is also a sharing church. Notice this. And all those who had, in verse 44, believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. There are some who said, you know what, well this is kind of socialism or communism. No it's not. The family is the basic institution or structure designed by God. God works through families. But what we see here in the church was they were so moved by the needs of those who they just met that they did whatever they had to do in order to meet that need. We're not talking about meeting greeds. You know, in our culture we're so confused. I need this. I need that. 
that. You know what? 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, we need a roof over our head, we need food on the table, we need clothes on our back, and with those things we should be content. Those are our needs. The rest are greeds, wants, desires. Put them in whatever category you want, but needs are needs and everything else goes outside of that. So when they saw the needs of those around them, they were motivated to sell off their possessions and to do whatever God led them to do in order to meet the needs of those that they saw who were in great need. And as we look at this, in fact, if anyone disagrees with that, read Acts chapter 5 and realize that Ananias and Sapphira, the property that they sold, it was within their rights to sell it or not to sell it. In fact, then when they did sell it, they could choose to give as much away that they wanted to or they could hold back whatever they wanted to. The indictment of God at Ananias and Sapphira was that they lied to the Holy Spirit or lied to God about the amount that they got. So they gave a portion away, said it was all that they got for their property. They held back a portion for themselves and God judged them on the sin of lying, not on the sin of whether or not they gave everything or not because it was within their freedom to choose to do that and it's clearly told to us. But they shared with one another who had need. Generosity is the mark of a genuine conversion. Generosity is the mark of a genuine conversion. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And see what God has to say about beholding one who is in need and doing nothing about it. 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 is a passage I would recommend that we memorize. We all know John 3, 16 to a large degree. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him won't perish, but have everlasting life. Well, John, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes in this first letter, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It says, little children, let us love not with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So how can you see someone who has a need and God has blessed you with resources to meet that need and close your heart to them? God says, you know what? You better examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith because a genuine born-again person will be generous towards those that God brings into our path and has needs. And the reason we meet those needs is not just to make them comfortable here on earth, which maybe that will happen, but the reality of meeting those needs is so that then they have a desire to hear what we have to say about why we're as generous as we are. Because, you know, sin nature is selfish. If you look and see what, you know, and this country is one of the most generous countries in the world, but latest statistics indicate that the average person gives like 1.8% of their gross annual income to charitable organizations. And here's the sad reality. And the church of Jesus Christ is about 3%. I mean, that's not much difference. There's not much difference, is there? And there should be a huge difference. It should be so awe-inspiring because of our generosity to meet the needs of those around us. Jesus always met physical needs first so that He can share who He was and what He has done on that person's behalf. We have got to be generous, sharing people that meet the needs of those God brings into our life for the purpose of gaining access and earning the right to be heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The ideal church is not a self-centered, me-oriented ministry, but a church that's filled with folks who are involved with one another. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And you know what? Even in the midst of weeping with those who weep, there can be joy in our midst. 
Let me give you an example. With all the sadness and trauma that's going on in the world today, it's, it's worth reflecting on the death of a very important person, which almost went unnoticed last week. Some of you may not even have noticed this. But Larry LaPrisi, the man who wrote The Hokey Pokey, died peacefully at the age of 93. The most traumatic part of his death was trying to get him into the coffin. They put his left leg in first. Well, and, and, and then all the trouble started after that. Hey, I just want to, I'm not drawing a salary yet. I just want to let you know that. So you, you better be kind now. You better be kind and considered here. But the ideal church is a sharing, generous body of believers that reflects the one another teachings of Scripture. To love one another, to bear with one another, to pray for one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, to serve one another, to teach one another, accept one another, honor each other. And this can't be forced and it can't be legislated. It has to come from the Spirit of God moving into the hearts of each and every one of His children. We can't make anybody do anything, nor will I ever have a desire to do that. You know what? If God's speaking to you about getting involved, then get involved. Just do what God's calling you and equipping you and gifting you to do. You know, it's a matter of your obedience between your, and your relationship between God and yourself. But we're not going to strong arm anybody to get involved in anything. You want to help because God's leading you to help? Then we want to do everything we can to accommodate that. But we're not going to force anyone to do anything. In fact, our giving, you know, the boxes at the back. You know, the needs that we have to meet the needs of people. The greatest need that this world has is forgiveness. And everything that we do will be get geared to getting the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the masses of people so that they know that God loves them and forgives them in Jesus Christ. You want to give? Give. First, you've got to give of yourself. And then you give of the resources that God has given you. But we're not going to strong arm anybody. And, and, and we trust that God will move in your hearts. See, you know, a unified, awe-inspiring, miraculous, sharing church cannot be anything but what? Notice this. Going back to Acts chapter 2. They were a church that was filled with joy. Notice that. Day by day, continuing in verse 46, with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they couldn't wait to get together. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity. Gladness. One of the key reasons for the joy and the sincerity of the heart that was manifested. They were the real deal. What you saw is what you got. And there was no stumbling blocks at all. In fact, the word means smooth stones. There wasn't any stumbling. You know, for those who used to walk in sandals, they knew how difficult it was to walk on roads that were not smooth. If you've ever golfed in Hawaii or somewhere like that and, and, and you golf like I do and a lot of your golf balls go into the lava fields and you're thinking, man, I just got that and it's a brand new ball, man. It's like a $5 ball. And, I, you know, it's expensive and I'm going to get it. And you start walking in that lava field, that is not a good idea. Five bucks will seem cheap by the time you get out of the lava rocks. You know, with shins bleeding, shoes ripped up, torn up, reaching down, trying to get it. And then when you get it, the lava chewed it all up. It's not even worth going after. But the reality of it is, is that God is saying that, you know what, this church should be a church where, you know what, there's not those rocks or stumbling blocks. It's smooth sailing. And they, were, they had genuine joy. It's not forced. You don't, have to try, you don't have to tell somebody walking up, smile. 
Hey, you know what? If they're not smiling, you tell them to smile. I've learned from experience. That's not a wise bit of advice. If they're not smiling, you tell them to smile. They'll smile, but they're going to think something about you. They're going to be like, yeah, can't smile. You tell me to smile. You tell you to smile. You told me to smile. Tell me to smile. And it's like you sit there the whole rest of the time going like this. I can't believe someone told me to smile. Look, you know what? We're not telling anybody to smile. You know? Let the joy of the Lord shine through you. You know what I'm saying? These people were just happy to be there. And they were glad to be there. They had a joyful heart. And as we look at this, there's two things in closing that will be true of every church that's unified and magnified. You know what? It'll be multiplied. Notice in verse 47. This church was filled with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. All the people. Believers, non-believers. You know what? Everybody and anybody that comes in contact with any of us, whether they come to this church or they're outside the church, whether they're in you know, the areas around us, God says, you know what? When a church is unified and magnified in the world, it's going to be multiplied. Why? Because we're going to gain favor in the sight of both God and man. Because we're going to be meeting the needs of people that come into our life and that's going to gain favor in their sight. We're going to be available for people to pray with them and to be there for them and that will gain favor in their sight. See, it was an attractive church. It was an attractive church. Favor with all the people. Unity, love, sharing, involved with one another, committed to biblical truth. These things are attractive to a world that's filled with division, dissension, Hatred, selfishness, isolation, and no standards for living of right or wrong. When you stand for something, you will fall for nothing. If you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. We've got to have strong biblical convictions. And if that's what this church is all about, don't be surprised when God honors what we do. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. I want to see the growth of our church be because God added to our numbers those who are being saved. And with that, I want to say something that is a burden of mine that I want to share with you. I'm not about sheep stealing. And what I mean by that is this. I'm not about going out, recruiting people who are involved in other local churches to get involved in our church. If they're not satisfied or content or troubled by the direction of whatever church they're involved in and they're looking for a church that is this model and you invite them, that's one thing. But we're not about stealing sheep. And the reason I say that is this. It's been said that if every church on a Sunday morning in Orange County was filled to its capacity only 8% of the people in Orange County would be in a church. How ridiculous it is to go out and steal sheep when we've got 92% of this population that needs to hear about Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Hey, I want God to add to our numbers because He has deemed us worthy to be entrusted with the care of those who He brings into His family. Day by day, God was continuing to add to their numbers those who were being saved. Saved from what? Saved from the condemnation and the wrath of God for sin. Saved from judgment 
Saved from an eternity hopelessly lost and separated from God. God was bringing to their numbers day by day those whom God was grasping from the hand of Satan and the depths of hell. We come together to huddle together, to have fellowship together, to praise our God together, to be instructed in the Word together, so that when we leave this huddle, we go out into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and reach those who have never heard of the consequences of sin and judgment with the great love and mercy of Jesus Christ that's found at the cross. That must be our commitment. That is our cause. That's why we're still here. And that's what we're to do until Jesus comes again or calls us home. Father, thank you for this time to be together in your word. God, I just pray that we can, if in any way that your spirit speaks to any one of us, that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers only. God, 92% of the people in Orange County claim no church affiliation whatsoever. Lord, there's a mission field that's right in our backyard. It's at our places of business. It's in our homes with our families. It's in our neighborhoods. It's with our friends. It's in our schools. It's in our athletic teams. God, there's a, there's a mission field that you are bringing to us. God, may we be true to the calling. May we live in such a manner that others will be attracted to how we live and what we have to say. May we be the light that you say that we are and the salt to create a thirst and to shine a spotlight on the safety that's found at the foot of the cross. God, I pray for anyone that's here today that may not be aware of their need for you, that you would make them acutely aware that their greatest need is forgiveness, that they're born in enmity with God, they're in rebellion against you, and that they need to come to the cross of Jesus Christ, believing that he died for them, he rose again from the dead, and as they receive him as their, as their Savior, that they're born again from, a God, from above by God to become children of you who believe in your name. Lord, thank you for that. We thank you for our time together. May we leave here today having learned something, been fed in such a way that not where we're satisfied to the point of wanting to take a nap, but that we're fueled to the point where we have energy to go about your business. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.